All right, grab your Bible. You're going to go to Amos today, um, near the back of the New Testament, small book. It doesn't have a whole bunch of chapters. It's got a few. It's a little bit, definitely bigger than Jonah, and much smaller than Isaiah, however, but it's towards the back, small book, A-M-O-S. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you know they're on the back. Grab one, take one with you. We have tons of Bibles. I'm dead serious when I say take them with you. If you want more, if you want to take three or four, I know Ed's taken a few to give out before. If you want to take some to give out, just tell me. I've got stacks in the closet back there. So we want them to be in people's hands. But most importantly, I want them in your hand because you're going to need them to read along today with what we're doing. So uh, quickly recapping the story of God. We're not going to say it all, but uh, your Bible does. So you could see it all from there. But in the beginning, God created all things. Uh, he created Adam, he created Eve, first man and woman, put them in a paradise where uh, they were given charge over all of God's creation. But instead of submitting to God's rule and plan and authority, they decided to take it for themselves. The result is sin uh, moves into all of creation through them. All things die as a result and death comes. But God makes a promise to Eve in the very beginning that there will be a child, a descendant from her own body who will redeem or make right that sin and that death uh and we've been following she thought maybe it was her first son but that wasn't the case because her first son was killed by her, uh, the other son and the path goes on and we've been following that thread all the way down through the flood and how god preserved nine people to carry that seed on through to the other side even though he wiped out the planet at the time and then on the other side, we follow it down to a man named Abraham, and God decides to build a whole nation through this person, Abraham. And Abraham has Isaac. Abraham has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel uh, because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So his 12 children become the, his 12 tribes, Israel. And that becomes a nation. That nation finds itself in bondage in Egypt, but God leads them out of Egypt and brings them to a land that he promised to give to Abraham from the start. And they establish themselves in that land. During the time they're in that land, they're constantly being um, swayed back and forth by the wickedness that's there. And they, 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 they get enticed into sin and they start to follow idols and whatever else. And then God raises up these people called judges that deliver them from that and restore them to worship correctly following the Lord but then over time, as things are good, they fall right back again. And this cycle continues as God raises these judges. The people cry they want a king like everybody else. They don't want judges. They want a king. And so ultimately, God allows them to have their first king, Saul. Second king, really? Who was their first king? God, correct. Second king was Saul. So the people choose him. He turns out to be a pretty horrible king. Imagine that. So God assigns them uh, David. David Probably, not probably, is the greatest king in their history, short of God. Um, and as a result of that time period of kings, God also assigns prophets who are people who speak for God directly. Because they didn't. nobody walked around carrying copies of the Old Testament, and that's all they had. There was no New Testament, obviously, then. They didn't even have the whole Old Testament yet. They were still living it out. But they did for sure have the laws of Moses and those things. But they were in the temple. In Israel, they were not something you just carried around in your cell phone. You know what I mean? So God brought up prophets that would speak for and recognize him. Today, prophets are, uh, so-called prophets, 
are, I'm going to go on and say it even online, on, on statement here, in most cases, complete frauds, if you ask me, because they always have great good news for everybody and everybody loves them. No prophet in the Bible fit that description. None. All of the prophets in the Bible uh, were bearers of hard news, very much despised by the people a lot of times, and most of them suffered and died pretty horrifically. In fact, tradition says Isaiah, who we talked about last week, was sawn in half by using a dull saw. Okay, so just to separate myth from from. Reality. So anyway, today we're looking at the burden of the burden of God, and it comes from this phrase, the burden of the Lord, that's used repeatedly with prophets, especially Jeremiah, and we'll get to him later. But these guys kind of have this phrase, the burden of God, and the the burden sounds like a weird word, and it means, according to Dictionary.com, a load. I think that's funny. It's a load, a heavy load. It says usually. It could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual. And so today we're looking at this heavy load of God from two angles. The burden of God that we bear and the burden, when you say the burden of God, it's the one that that we bear and it's also the one that he bears. That statement can go either way. So look at, uh, if you're in Amos chapter 7, we're not going to obviously do the whole book of Amos. We'll survey a little bit of it, but we're going to focus on this little section in chapter 7. Uh, verse 14, Amos answered and said to Amaziah, you'll see who he is in a second. I was no prophet, Amos says, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs, trees. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Let me pray. God, your word is your word. Nothing has changed that. Since you spoke to Adam, it's always been your word. Uh, what I hold in my hand, what, what each person in the room holds in their hand, what's stacked back there on paper, Lord, it's, it's paper. But the words on it are from your mouth. Thousands of years, Lord, thousands of years of people recording what you've said. All describing the same word from the same God. You, you are real. You're true. It's not a small thing to hold your word. Lord, help us to take that seriously. Not just now, but as we walk out of here with it, it's still in our hand. Lord, I, I take that seriously now. And I ask that your word is heard over mine for sure. Just because I hold a mic means nothing, Lord. It's your, it's your word. I say this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Friday night... Uh, our high school won our first playoff game. It was a big deal. It was the first home game playoff in I don't even know how long. Coach, you know how long? Like a decade, it seems like. Uh, a long time. But definitely the first time we won. And it was the most amazing game. It was 41 to 42 at the end. Not that you guys who don't watch football care, but just take my word for it. On the sideline, best game I ever stood on the sideline for. We all had our hearts in our throats. Everybody erupted. Last second win. The whole thing was awesome. Um, but it's successful because of the guys who are on the field, particularly one comes to mind. His name's Chris. He's a quarterback. Some of you guys who've been with us for a long time remember praying for him uh, a couple of years ago when, or last year when COVID had his brain all messed up. Um, but we run a really fast offense and he leads that. And so he has to 
quickly at every moment he has to quickly look over to the coach and get a play as fast as he can and he has to get that play to everybody else and he has to obey whatever that play says and he's got to lead everybody else to obey and do the same thing uh it's a really big skill but if you see this dude he's also a really skinny kid and uh there was a lot of doubt at first a lot of the team was saying man he could throw the ball but there was pushback from other players you know, can he hand it off? Can he do this? Is he going to be selfish? How's he going to play? Can he take care of himself? He's an awful skinny guy. Um, a lot of times there were players, especially last year, that doubted the call that the coach sent in, and they would get after Chris. Why? Let's not do that. We don't need to do that. Let's do this. Let's do this. They don't, they don't trust what the coach is saying. Um, but to be fair, Chris has been a ball player all his life, okay? We had another player uh, a year or two ago. I don't remember how long. Was there away? Was he two years ago? Yeah, two years ago. Wow. COVID's messed it all up, you know. Uh, two years ago, a guy named Zeroway, called, we called him Z. Basically, this dude was a huge, huge kid, but he'd never played uh, football in his life until his senior year. Unlike Chris, he didn't have this pass to play in football. He never played before his senior year. But his senior year, he decided, oh, I'll give it a shot. Uh, and he was amazing. Not because he was just this naturally skilled athlete. But because he constantly asked for coaching, he was so coachable. He was so obedient to whatever the coaches fed into him, and he executed it so well. And he helped others learn at the same time. As a result, he got a D1 offer. He's playing for Utah now. I was watching yesterday as they were playing. In fact, he got offers from ASU. Tennessee, uh, uh, FSU, I tried to get him to take that one, but he wouldn't do it. Um, Even when others doubted him, hey, you're the new guy, what are you telling me how to do this for? He still stayed firm on on telling them and encouraging them and communicating. Even when the team started to shut down, he still stayed strong uh, with communicating. What made both of them successful is how well they accepted coaching. And how they responded and handled the plays that the coach gave them. How they communicated to those around them. Even when that burden was heavy. Even when it seemed like nobody wanted to hear it. Or everyone was doubting because we're losing. They, they still held to it. So here's your point to remember. If you've got a sheet, that's cool. If you don't, they're back there. You can grab it. But kind of the one point. God may call any of us at any time. To proclaim his word. And we need to be faithful to do it accurately without compromise. May he call any of us at any time to proclaim his word. We need to do it faithfully and accurately without compromise. So two questions here before we lay into this. Did Amos have a good reason for preaching like he did? Or maybe another way to look at it is did God have a good reason to appoint Amos to go do this? And then, do we have a good reason today to preach this? Did God give us a good reason to go do it? So, who is Amos? Well, look back in chapter 1. Again, don't freak out. We're not covering the whole book. Just going to skim a few verses here and there. Amos chapter 1, verse 3. Excuse me, verse 2. Get the glasses. Verse 1. Wow, Wiley. Verse 1. Amos 1, 1. The words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So that tells you he was a shepherd. He was among other shepherds. Tekoa is a village that's a little bit south of Jerusalem, about 10 or 12 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, it says, 
when he saw concerning Israel, so this is telling you who he's talking to, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the great earthquake. So this is around the mid-700s B.C. Uh, Hosea's alive. We'll talk about him next week. Hosea is there at the same time, around the same time. Jonah's there around the same time. Already talked about him. Isaiah is there around the same time. Already talked about him. They would have all known each other. Um, but this dude is from the southern kingdom in, in, in Judah, down where Jerusalem is. Because remember, this kingdom is divided by now. There's been a civil war, so to speak. The kingdom is divided. The northern ten, the tribes in the north, there's ten of those. And there's two tribes in the south. The ten tribes in the north call themselves Israel. The land, the capital city is Samaria. Alright, and the two tribes in the north call themselves Judah. Because the bigger tribe is Judah. And their capital is Jerusalem still. And the temple is still there in Jerusalem where it should be because God told him to put it there. So this guy is from the southern kingdom because, remember, he's a little bit south of Jerusalem. So he lives in and serves in Jerusalem, or, uh, Judah. But he's preaching to the northern kingdom, to Israel and Samaria. How do you think that's going over? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you're not even from here, dude. You're with them. Like, you're with them. Why couldn't God call him to preach to just Uzziah and Jerusalem? Why has he got to go all the way to the people who already hate him? It's got a real specific intro here, too. It refers to an earthquake. Um, years, Two years before the earthquake. We might say, in our language, before the big one. Uh, none of us, we, we don't have a reference for that, but that they did. Don't know what it was, but they did. If you lived in San Francisco in the late 80s and 90s, the big one would mean something to you. Um, if you're old enough to remember, there was significant. I remember I was a kid, but I still remember the images on TV and stuff uh, from the massive earthquake that they had. So whatever it was, we don't know. But to these people, 700 B.C., they knew of this great earthquake. And he's telling them this is two years before that. And Uzziah is king. Remember last week, Josh talked about Isaiah chapter 6. And it said, uh, Isaiah said, in the year that Uzziah died. So that tells you these two are around the same time period. This is obviously before chapter 6 of Isaiah because Uzziah is still alive. Um, so what made Amos, this shepherd, into a prophet? Like, where did he get the authority? Because this is where it gets dangerous for us. Where do you get the authority to say, thus says the Lord? God said so. Because people will come to you today all the time and say, God told me to tell you. Or God said, you need to. Where did this guy get that authority? Chapter 9, verse 1. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. But chapter 9, verse 1 says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said. That's just like Isaiah. Remember chapter 6 last week. Josh talked about Isaiah was inside the temple. And he saw the Lord. When it talked about the smoke filling the temple, that was the, when they'd go in the temple, they would put incense, uh, smoke, uh, incense, they would fire the incense up and it would create all the smoke that filled the temple anyway. Incense smoke. It was supposed to carry the glory of God up. And that incense burner was right outside of the Holy of Holies where the ark was and it was considered the throne of God. And so Isaiah goes in and he's putting this incense on the incense burner and immediately 
the whole moment transforms, and instead of in front of him is these big curtains with the Holy of Holies on the other side, those curtains appear, turn in a sense, turn into the robe of God, and he's seated there on that throne, and Isaiah falls on his face. Um, it says the foundation shook from the voice. So that's talking about the physical temple that he's in. This is not a vision. He wasn't carried away to heaven. It happened right there in front of him, and the whole walls of the temple shook. Uh, in this case, Amos is seeing the Lord standing by the altar. So Amos was just a shepherd. He didn't have the ability to go inside the temple like Isaiah would have. He didn't have the right to do that. So, But he could come into the courtyard where, where the uh, sacrificial altar was outside the door of the temple, in the courtyard, but outside the door of the physical temple. So he could come that far. So whatever, whenever it happened, however it happened, he's standing there and he sees God. Now, he doesn't explain to us what he sees quite the way that Isaiah did, but he sees him. All right? And God told him to go speak. Both of them literally saw God. That's key for anybody who claimed to speak from God. Even in the New Testament, everybody who spoke for God in the New Testament saw him. All of the apostles saw Jesus. Newsflash, Jesus is God. He's the one. It's him. It's all his story. It's all about him. If you haven't seen that already, you'll see it week to week, but it's constantly pictured throughout the word. He is that. It's him. He is the one. So for anybody who saw him, that being those disciples that were given the authority to write and speak, they got it from him. In fact, Revelation, which is the most prophetic book in the New Testament, begins with John, who wrote it, describing seeing God and hearing God, Jesus, as God, give him the message that he ended up speaking. And there's no surprise here that the same kind of thing goes on. Amos, maybe it's because of his background, maybe because he was a shepherd. Uh, he felt like he needed to reinforce this statement. But if you skim through the book, if you're looking at it, it's pretty wild. You can just look down and see the pages. But he starts with this phrase, thus says the Lord, over and over and over and over. It's not just like in chapter 1, he says it in verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 11, in verse 13. It's not like he says it once at the start of a chapter and then goes with it. Take my word for it now. He's repeating it. Hey, God said this. God said this. God said this. Chapter 2 in verse 1 in verse 4 in verse 6. Chapter 3 in verse 1 in verse 12. On and on and on. He says repeatedly, this is the Lord speaking. This is the Lord speaking. And not only that, he ends each one of those sections with, thus declares the Lord, or thus says the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 5, verse 8, verse 15. By the time you get to chapter 4, he says it six times. Ends what he's saying with, thus says the Lord. Hey, the Lord says this, and this is what the Lord says. You think he's trying to make a point? Not my word, it's his word. It's not my word, it's his word. And that's what I try to pray every time I get up to speak with a microphone or any other time for that matter. It's not my word, it's, it's his word. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 7. Chapter 3 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? What he's saying is God's word has been roared out. How can I not say it? How can I not share it? 
Guys, we got the same thing. You, you got to pull it off of paper. It's his word. And, and, and Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, as, as he's called in Revelation, has roared. It's, it's come out. Like, how can you not say it? That's what he's saying. The weight of God's word being heard and being shared. It's like a, a roaring lion has dumped it on you. In fact, what might be the scariest threat in all of the Bible is here in Amos' words. Look in chapter 8. Flip over there to verse 11. He says, Because the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I'll send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That should be scary. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They're going to run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. That's scary. That's scary. So why is Amos called to be a prophet to Israel? Well, Assyria was the greatest threat of war. And in fact, ultimately, Assyria will destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. But they were the greatest threat of war at the time. But Assyria is in this major time of repentance, which is crazy. Why? Do you know why Assyria is repenting? We talked about it. Nineveh's the capital city. What happened in Nineveh? Jonah. So because Jonah has gone and preached to Nineveh and Nineveh is repenting, Assyria at the moment is no threat to anybody. They are full of peace. And because of that, the whole land is full of peace. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, the nations around them, Egypt, everybody's in this great kind of time of peace. Times are great. Wealth is running crazy. Prosperity is high. What's there to be negative about? Why are you coming around here complaining, Amos? What's there to be mad about? Well, Amos chapter, you don't have to turn to these, but Amos chapter 5 describes, you can just note it, all this social injustice that's going on. All this social injustice. The poor are being abandoned, ignored, and walked all over. And the religious, like, self-righteousness is at an all-time high. Like everybody who's religious has just gotten in this super high, pious zone, and they're just walking all over the poor. And there's all this pride in the wealth and the security that they got because of it. Man, our walls are safe because look at all the money we have and all the horses we have, and everything's great. We don't need to worry. We got no problem. Times are good. In chapter 2 of Amos, he talks about how they've forgotten who saved them from Egypt. How they've forgotten who's rescued them over and over and over. And now they think they did it themselves. And they can do it again should they ever have to. Because times are just great. Does this sound familiar to y'all? I mean, I, does this sound familiar to y'all? It's a lot of the same that we are sitting in today. And it's dangerous and it's scary. Times are good. Things are great. Don't come around here with your negative talk. I got a good job. I got a good stuff. Hey, let's get the poor out of here. We don't need the poor out of here. They get on the street corners. They're ugly. They're obnoxious. Y'all think that's a joke. You know that happens. There's towns 
I won't drop names, but there's towns within this community that have no, that will usher the poor straight up out. Like they are not allowed to be there. Um, what made it a burden, though, for Amos? Well, chapter 1 begins with this repeated phrase, for three transgressions of, or four, blank, 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 and I will not revoke punishment. Basically, that's like a listing of crimes. It's like stacking verdicts up. Here's the verdict. Uh, reading it aloud to nations and cities and whatever, like, like a judge saying, on three counts of blank, I sentence you to blank. And when he says, I won't revoke the punishment, he's saying, you're guilty as charged. You deserve it. I have for three counts of this, for four counts of this, well, I only need one, but I got three. I got four. You're guilty. And I'm not revoking punishment. You, you, you deserve it. In chapter 7, Amos tells, them, tells the people of Israel how close they are, some scary stuff, how close they are to God destroying them. How close they are. And he says, but I prayed for you. I prayed for you. And God's patience is paper thin, but he extended it. You have no idea how close you are. And I think about this all the time. Just maybe a side note. but And I'm not just talking about America. Although we can say America. I'm talking about just my world in general that I call home. How close we can get to the destruction of God and not know it. Like, you won't know it until it's happened. How close can we get? What holds his hand back? In this case, it was one man's prayer. When I tell you we pray during the services for a reason, I'm not joking. I'm not, I'm not joking. It matters. And that brings us back to where we started. Chapter 7, verse 10. Let me pick it up there. So go back to chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, who was king of Israel, remember northern kingdom here, saying, Amos has conspired against you, king, in the midst of the house. He's walked into our own land. I know he's from Judah. What's he doing here? He walked in our own land in Israel, and he's conspiring against you. The land can't is not able to bear his words. These people can't handle hearing what he's got to say. Thus Amos has said, because this is what he's saying, Jeroboam is going to die by the sword and Israel's going to go into exile in a foreign land. That's exactly what's going to happen. But he's there telling them beforehand. And he's saying that these people don't need to hear this garbage. And this man has walked up here from Judah, has no right to say this king. And presumably, Amos is standing there as this is going on. So presumably, they're, t- they're both standing before the king. Because then Amaziah says to Amos, Oh, seer, prophet, you who sees what God says, you know, he's saying it very mockingly. Go, flee away to the land of Judah. Hey, run away from here, bro. Go home. Go back to Judah. Eat your bread over there. Prophesy over there. But don't ever prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary and it's a temple of the kingdom. So when the kingdom split, so what was the capital of Israel? Where was the temple at before the split? Jerusalem, right? That's where God told uh, David to build it. That's where it was. That's where it was. Uh, even the foundation is still there today. Many believe, myself being one of them, that it will be, it'll be rebuilt. But there is 
in that time, there was the temple. It was in Jerusalem. God called everybody to come to the temple in Jerusalem to worship there. There was a high priest that had, there was a way in which that high priest came to be, had to be a direct descendant of, yeah, of the Levites and of Aaron in particular. So it had to be a direct descendant of Aaron of the Levites to even be considered to be that one person who was in that one place. And that person was supposed to be high priest his whole life. It didn't change like an election every two, four years or whatever. He was supposed to be it his whole life. So when the nation split and the, the ten tribes in the north realized that, hey, if we keep traveling down to Jerusalem to worship there with their priest, then why are we even bothering splitting in the first place? We need our own temple. So they went to Bethel where a cow god had already been placed which Bethel is only about six or eight miles from Jerusalem. So you're talking about barely across the line. Like they got it as close as they could get it to the line. And they built themselves a little makeshift temple there. And they assigned their own little priest to be priest. And they said, everybody goes there. Nobody goes to Jerusalem anymore. Y'all come here. Only here. So that's part of the struggle that they're having. So verse uh, 14 says, Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was, this is what we read, I was no prophet, I'm a... I'm not, I'm not even a descendant of a prophet. I was a herdsman. I'm out there doing, man, I'm out in the, with the sheep taking care of trees. Bro, I'm not a, I'm not a prophet. Or I wasn't, but the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people. I'm here because he told me to. Why choose Amos then? If he's saying all this, why choose him? Cause who gets the glory from that? You know what I'm saying? You can't say, oh, well, Amos had great theological education. Oh, well, Amos went to the finest schools. What do you expect? Oh, sure, Amos, I guess you're saying, man, look, only God gets the glory from this. What does that mean for us? This should be huge encouragement for you. It's not an excuse not to go. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was one of the most theologically educated people in the Bible. So it's both and. Okay, it's both and. But. He took me, it says. It's almost like, what does that sound like to you? Almost like he was saying I was kidnapped. Like God snuck up and yanked me away from the sheep. If you've ever been called, especially in the ministry, and it's a genuine call, whatever it is, preaching or anything otherwise, I promise you, you understand that. I promise you, you understand that. But it doesn't always have to be a call. It could be, it could be. An opportunity. It could be something that suddenly sneaks up on you. You didn't realize God was involved in. Look at verse 16. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Now he's speaking to Amaziah. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. And you say, do not preach against the house of Isaac. It just means Israel. Okay, so here's what the Lord says. Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. And your sons and your daughters are going to fall by the sword, and the land will be divided with you up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from this land. How do you think his response was going to be to that? You know what I'm saying? And he's saying it right in front of the king. And the crazy thing is that is exactly what does happen. Uh, when, I, when Assyria years later comes and invades, and destroys the northern kingdom. Uh, many women were left abandoned and had to resort to prostitute to try to survive because their families were gone, stolen from them, and scattered all over the world. 
Uh, this man would have been drug off in captivity. His sons probably fought to defend the city and were killed in it. So it's, as horrible as it sounds, it's all a result of war. And a war that he'd been saying was coming. And it sounds horrible to say it to this priest at Bethel, quote unquote. But again, there shouldn't be a priest at Bethel. This guy's a fraud on every level. We know that because if he was real, he would know he's not supposed to be there. And he would see this temple at Bethel and call this uh, uh, an idol. You know? The fact is, you can't just leave however you want, whenever you want, and stamp God's name on it. You, you, you can't do it that way. You can't do it that way. It might, you might be successful at it for a while. But you can't do it that way. Eventually, eventually the truth is coming for you. So, do we have good reason to do this today? Does God have good reason to call us to do this today? Well, first let me point something out here. The burden here, and this is what's really been shocking me about this as I've been studying through it too. I'm real familiar with the term, the burden of the Lord. But one thing that's really been standing out to me this time through is the burden is not so much the responsibility of sharing God's word. The burden is the fact, or fact's not even the word. The burden is the broken heart over the fact that nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants, you know, if you were going to share God's word and everybody was going to love you and hug you and bring you Christmas presents because you told them about Jesus and everybody's just going to invite you to dinner and give you a brand new car and just love you to death because you tell them about Jesus, there'd be no burden. You, you would never, you, it'd be the best thing that ever happened to you to say it every single day, but that's not what happens, is it? That's not what happens. It's the weight is the fact that people are going to reject it. And it shouldn't make you mad. It does. I'm one. I'll say, I'll be honest. I I get mad. But it shouldn't. It should break your heart. It should break your heart. God God here even. The whole book is God's giving these actions. and I mean, giving these warnings and doing these actions. It's actually grace. You understand that? This is a hard, heavy book to read. But it's actually grace because they're hearing it. You know, in in chapter 4. It says, I with, God says, I withheld food, but you didn't return to me. I withheld rain, but you didn't return to me. I brought blight and locusts, but you didn't return to me. I sent disease, but you didn't return to me. I sent death, but you didn't return to me. All those things are horrible, but they didn't respond to it. They, they didn't respond to anything. In chapter 5, verse 4, thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Chapter verse six: Seek the Lord and live. Verse fourteen: Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. People say, "Well, we just ignore the world around us." That's not true. You have a responsibility. Voting matters. I'll say it. Among other things, you have a responsibility to establish justice. Like if it's wrong for them to be treated that way, whoever them is, then you need to do something about it. 
You need to do something about it. It may be that the Lord, and, and it may be, if you hate evil, you love good, you seek the Lord, you establish justice, it may be that the Lord of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph, to whoever's left. Amos is preaching this message of repentance while there's still time to respond. You know, God could just bring the judgment right now and never say anything. You don't need to send Amos. Why don't you just do it? Just send Assyria. You don't need to send Amos. He'd have been right. He'd have been just to do it. But instead he sends a message of warning and this challenge to respond. For us, we now, people say all the time, we're in a time of grace. We're in a time of grace. Yes, that's true. But it's always been a time of grace. Nobody's ever been saved by their own good. So it's always been a time of grace. That's nothing new. And we know, just like they did, those of us who know his word know what? Judgment's coming. We, we know it is. We know it is. It's no different. And I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying we need to preach hellfire and brimstone. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is maybe if we believe, truly believe in the reality of it, we might preach a little more. Not saying we preach hellfire and brimstone. I'm only saying if we truly believed in the reality of it, we might preach just a little bit more than we do. So the burden that God has is the same burden that he places on his prophets and on us. It's for the lost, but specifically because of the fact that they're going to reject it. And Jesus was burdened by it. Matthew 23, verse 37. You can just note it. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. I imagine he's crying as he says this. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you're not willing. We should be burdened by it. And, And we should anticipate the same rejection, to be quite honest. Romans 10, verse 14, and you can just note these verses, but Romans 10, verse 14 is one of the more famous verses about sharing the gospel. Paul wrote, how then will they call on him whom they've not believed in? They, who is they? They is whoever has not heard. That's what he's talking about. How, how then will they call on him who they, whom they've not believed in. And how are they to believe in him and whom they've never heard about? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? Prophet Amos, in his case, in our case, preachings, proclaiming God's word. Verse 15, and how are they supposed to do that unless somebody's sent to do it? So as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's what Paul is saying. That's what God is saying, how beautiful it is when you preach the good news. That doesn't mean that everybody who hears it's going to say that. That's the sad part. That's the frustrating part. It doesn't mean they're going to see They will see it that way. Some will. Doesn't mean they all will. John 8, Jesus himself. Hey, listen, if they reject Jesus himself, John 8, verse 43, says, Why don't you understand what I'll say? What, I, what I'm saying to you is, I'll tell you why. It's because you can't bear to hear my word. You can't bear to hear it. He even goes on to say there of their father, the devil. Matthew 10, verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What is sheep? 
What do wolves do to sheep? Eat them. Not kill them. Eat them. Both. Kill and eat. He says, so be wise as serpents, innocent as dust. Beware of men. Beware of them because they're going to deliver you over to courts and flog you in their, tem- in their synagogues. What was the synagogue for? It's supposed to be for worshiping God, right? It didn't, he said they're going to beat you up in church, quote unquote. Way to say it. And on top of that, you're going to be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Not because, hey, you're a good person. Not because you're preaching government or anti-government. But because you're preaching Jesus they're going to drag you in front of kings and whatnot, ever else. To bear, but, but he's saying that's going to give you an opportunity to bear witness for me. Second Timothy 4, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said in verse 3, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They don't want to hear the truth. They have itching ears. They will accumulate from themselves teachers to suit your own. Hey, man, Wiley, don't get up there and preach all this hell stuff. You know what? Make this more modern. Let's have, make, make, give me something I can use today to get my shoes on. You know, and, and I'm not saying I shouldn't do that. But what I am saying is I'm not trying to give you what you want to hear or me either. Me, I'm just opening what his word says and trying to dump that out here like food on a plate. You don't want to eat it. That's up to you. You know, sometimes it's a steak. Sometimes it's liver, I, you know, but yeah, okay. Verse or chapter three, Second Timothy chapter three, verse twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what does it say? Maybe, could be, will be, will be. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So why preach it then? Well, because it's the truth. First of all, and second of all, and this is the big one. If you belong to Christ in this room, that's because somebody preached it to you anyway. If you gave your life to Christ in this room, that's because somebody preached it to you anyway. So if you need a reason bigger than any other, that's the reason. If you don't know Christ in this room, that's where it all starts. You want to hear him? You want to see him? You want to know him? Uh, You want to move beyond the certain judgment that's coming that's something you you want freedom from it comes from the gospel it's exactly that here's the good news you respond to this here's the good news death no longer has to control you sin no longer has to hold you why because jesus christ who was all god took sin of the world onto himself and had it nailed to a cross taking your death that you deserve and bearing it himself dying going into the grave And three days later, conquering that grave, not just to show out. He was the creator of all things, as if a grave is going to hold him. He did that for you. That was something you can't do, and I can't do either. Nobody can do. The grave has a right to you because of sin, but he took that. He took that by conquering the grave for you, and that is available to you by faith. It begins by saying, Lord, I repent. I'm sorry. I know I'm a sinner. If you're not a sinner in the room, then you can ignore what I'm saying. Ignore what I'm saying. If you know you're a sinner in the room, this is your only hope. This is it. Tell him. I know I'm a sinner. Lord, save me. Save me. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be pretty. You don't have to come up with a creative phrase. You just talk to him and tell him that. I trust you. I trust in what you did. God may call any of us at any time to proclaim his word. And we need to be faithful to do it without 
without compromise. Uh, you want to come back up? We're going to do one more song, but you all know how this goes. If you all stand up with me, um, let me make a couple of quick points for you. If, if, if you're a believer in the room, how, how do you be prepared for this if he does call you to do this? How do you be prepared for this? Because he's going to. Well, practice living in his word, first of all. Practice living in his word. And then start talking now. Just start talking about his word. Talk to people that you know love his word. It doesn't have to be out there. But the more you're talking about it, the more it's going to be part of your speech. And the more when the opportunity comes, it's just going to come out of your mouth because you're already talking about it anyway. And then probably biggest is anticipate the fact that people are not going to want to hear it. Anticipate that. Doesn't mean you've got to be ugly or forceful or rude, but just anticipate that. Let me pray. Lord, I love you. Um, and I thank you for the privilege of having your word, of being able to open a simple book, being able to have countless copies on my cell phone, on laptops. Lord, our access to your word is honestly it's ridiculous, Lord, considering how little we pay attention to it. And I'll take, I'll take that blame as well. Lord, uh, there, there are nations on the planet right now where it is against the law it is strictly forbidden there is a famine of your word lord help us be faithful to take it everywhere but especially here because it's it's anything but a famine it's everywhere help us establish justice lord and not just run away from the responsibility we have to make a stand for the, what's right lord help us love good love you and hate evil and god i pray that you continue as you always do to save people and to use your word and your gospel to bring people to hope